Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. Um, let's pray, and we're going to jump right into resuming our study in Revelation. Father, thank you for the kindness you give to us in giving us a family in the church, that you give us the opportunity to, be, to have people around us that, that, we, that we can be supported by, that we can also be a part of laying ourselves down for and showing love to, and that, that we are bound together by Christ. We thank you that we have the chance to open your word together and to hear from you. And so we pray today that you would give us ears to hear what you have for us, that you would give our hearts the tenderness to receive it, we pray that today the, the words, of, I pray that the words of my mouth in this time and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing to you. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, we are in Revelation chapter 12 today, so if you have a Bible, you can open it up with me to Revelation 12. Um, it'll also be on the screen for you. Um, as we do, we get to a new section in the book of Revelation, and this new section is, shows us a vision of human history from chapters 12 to 16. And so we're going to see really kind of the curtain being pulled back on a deeper spiritual reality that undergirds all of our, the reality that we experience. This is something that, that might sound a little strange or a little bit philosophical or abstract at first, but I know that you can all handle it because you've watched WandaVision. And our family, at least, has been obsessed with that and waiting for it to come out each week. And, and the, um, don't worry, if you haven't watched it and you want to, I'm not going to give away full spoilers, just some moderate ones. Um, but it, in, it, it's, it's been an interesting series because it's playing with our perception of reality. And whether there's alternate reality or whether the true reality is what we see. And so the, it, there's the season builds up, the artistry of it. We just went back we had a, we were, and watched the first several episodes after some big reveals in the last episodes, and it's amazing to see how they painted things through and these threads that run through the entire series. But it, but it gets to this, this idea of a constructed reality and what we see versus what's actually true. What is, so what is visible and obvious versus what is actually true. And so there's something of that in what we get to in, Revelations, in Revelation chapters 12 to 16, that, that we, there is more to our world than what we immediately see and the things that we immediately observe, and, and that, that it is deeper than our individual experience for sure, and, and even our collective experience, but what we are going to see is a vision of a spiritual reality that is terrifying at points and certainly humbling. And so, so today's passage in Revelation pulls back that curtain for us and shows us the spiritual reality of what we're a part of and, and shows us that there is a cosmic battle that has happened throughout human history and certainly in the time from Christ's death and resurrection and ascension and, and waiting for his return. And so this is an interlude that begins. We've been covering 
Since chapter 4, John the Apostle had a vision of the God's throne in heaven in chapters 4 and 5, and then the opening of seven seals. On a, now we come to a point where there's a few chapters where it takes a step back to show us something of our reality, the archetypes of this world that we're living in. And so we're in chapter 12. We'll read the whole chapter today, and this is what we read. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon around her feet. Everybody say, with the clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains, in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled to the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power in the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished, For time, times, and half a time. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What a chapter. Now, I think we've seen this throughout the book of Revelation, that, that Revelation, as, as far as sections of Scripture, is more reliant on the rest of the Bible than any other book of the Bible for us to be able to understand it. And so there's imagery that Revelation pulls in from both Old and New Testaments, from, from the fullness of the storyline of what God has done in pursuing his people. And so we see that, and it helps us to understand the imagery of this apocalyptic letter. But today, there are clear themes here. There's, there, I mean, the... We don't have to guess at who the dragon is, right? 
Like this is, this is made clear to us. And, and so this is, as it says in verse 9, it's the great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil, called Satan. He's the deceiver of the whole world. And so we have titles to know who this figure is. And so we, it's, it, as we wrestle through this, what we're going to look at today and how we're going to see, what we're going to see today as we look through this text is we see the fury of Satan on display. We come to understand what it is that Satan does and who he is, what, he's, what his purposes are. And so today we are going to see the fury and wrath of our enemy. And that's where we will spend our time. Three observations today in three major sections in the text. First is that Satan is intent on our destruction, on destruction as a whole, but on our destruction. And so it begins with a vision of this woman. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, on her head a crown of 12 stars. And so this woman, there's imagery that comes in of Joseph's dream. If you go back to Genesis chapter 37, and remember Joseph who ended up in Egypt, um, that he had a dream that, that, the, that the different you know, bushels were bowing down to his, and the, the 12 stars represent something of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so there's imagery here that this woman in the passage is a representation of the people of God throughout history. And we see that as this woman is, has identification with the old covenant people of God, Israel. We see this as this woman has identification with the new covenant people of God in the church or Christians. And, and when we see this, time, there's this key phrase that happens throughout Revelation, and we've seen this already, but when we see 1,260 days, that's three and a half years, or a time and times and half a time, that's indicative of the same, that, that this is a period in history that, that is called the last days, that is the time from the ascension of Jesus to his return. And so there's a protection over the woman for this church age or this, these last days. And yet also, I think that within this, this is, the Bible uses these kinds of archetypes throughout it so that and people call this typology, that there are, there are greater fulfillments along the way for predictions that come. And so there's definitely echoes here of Mary herself, the one who birthed Jesus and raised him. Mary is a hero. Now, I know if you're not Roman Catholic, Protestants tend to get too scared to recognize anything about Mary because we're scared that we'll become too Catholic. Got to get over that. Mary is a hero. And, and I know Roman Catholics take things too far in praying to her, we don't need to go to the mother of Jesus as if she's got a special in with the God of all creation. But there's, some, there's a lot that we can learn from Mary. Imagine how scary it would have been for her to be pregnant while she was engaged. Remember, she was young. She was a teenage girl, and she was betrothed to Joseph. She was facing public shame, and in a cultural setting where if adultery could be proved, she could be executed. And so then, on top of that, of the fear of walking through the, the carrying this child and, and birthing this child, then she had to raise the Messiah. Can you imagine that? Now listen, if, you, if you're not a parent, then, then this is something that's hard to understand. But, but as a parent, I can tell you that, that parenting is a fantastic way to have every single one of your weaknesses and failures put on display. When your kids are little, 
You see it in, you see yourself reflected in them, and it's terrifying. You'll watch your child do something or say something, and you'll go like, you're not supposed to do that, and you go, oh, no. <laughs> like, I know exactly where they learned that, and it must have been my spouse. <laughs> but, but then, when they get older, you don't have to just recognize your faults in what's reflected in their lives and personalities. They will tell you what's wrong with you. And, and, and so, but can you imagine then to have somebody that you can't dismiss as a child that you're saying like, well, you know, you're, you've got, you're messed up in this too, but instead you have the incarnate God in your house all the time. And this pas- but this passage brings us into the most vulnerable and intimate setting, maybe in the whole of the human experience. It brings us into this birthing room. She was pregnant, crying out in birth pains, in the agony of giving birth. And in the midst of that, we see another sign that there is a dragon waiting to devour the child that she is giving birth to. Now, when you read the Gospels, in, in the Gospel accounts, the, the imagery of what happens with Mary has echoes of, of creation happening again. That the Holy Spirit hovered over her, just like the Spirit hovered over the waters of the deep in Genesis 1. That what happened in Christ wasn't just a, a teenage pregnancy, it was... It was the incarnate God coming to take on flesh. And what happened in Jesus' incarnation is the recreation of all things, that he came as the second Adam. We see this in Romans, that we are either in Adam or in Christ, that if we're in Adam, we're in death, but Christ brings life. And so in the midst of all of this, there was so much bound up in what was happening, and Satan was waiting to destroy everything about it. And again, what a vulnerable place to, be in the, to bring us into the birthing room here. I've gotten to experience this three times in my life. And I'm amazed. It, it, it's life-changing to have seen all three of my kids born. And as a dad, I, there's not really much you do. <laughs> like watching Alyssa in pain, walking, going through the agony of birth and uh, and, and just standing beside, like, you're doing great. <laughs> but this chapter peels back the curtain on a reality that is disturbing and terrifying, that this child is the only hope for humanity. And even in the agony of delivery, the dragon was waiting to devour him. This giant red dragon ready to destroy God's work of redemption and dis- by destroying humanity and, and destroying our hope. And, and again, we don't have to guess who this dragon is. It tells us clearly that Satan is bent on destruction. And this is important for us because there are times in our lives, in our experiences, when we look at the world around us that it seems like Satan has the upper hand. It feels like he's winning the battle. There's times when we look around us and wonder, God, where are you? And why are you letting these things happen? And why does it seem like wickedness rules the day? Why does it seem like violence rules the day? And, and, and it feels like we run the risk of being destroyed ourselves. Our lives can feel desperate at times. And, and we need to realize that there is a greater spiritual reality that underlies everything that we go through. And it is deeper than what we can see. And it is part of a cosmic battle for, the, for, for all of humanity. But that gets to the second reality. Is that Satan has been defeated at the cross of, of Christ. So yeah, we see the fury of our enemy on display. He is intent on destruction and it, I mean, this chapter couldn't end much more ominously than it does, right? 
that he wants to make war on the offspring of the woman, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, and he stood on the sand of the sea. But right in the middle of this, in the center of all of it, we see that Satan doesn't actually have a chance, that he's been defeated at the cross of Christ. Now, the woman was protected by God in the wilderness. She was brought there to be nourished by God, and then a war arises in heaven. This battle happens in heaven, and we see a battle between Satan and between Michael, the archangel, and, and this, the dragon and his angels fought back, and so this was happening in the heavens, but Satan was defeated, and there was no longer a place for him in heaven, so he was thrown down to the the earth. And this is, we need to be clear on this too, because there are, I think too often our theology has been informed too deeply by Star Wars. That we think that it's this cosmic battle between good and evil and that they are equal. That it's, it's whether light or darkness, whether it's Jedi or Sith, whether it's, whether it's yin and yang, that there's a balance to the world and a balance to the force and that, that this is, we're not sure how it's going to work out in the end, but that God and Satan are standing diametrically opposed to each other as if they, were, they are equal forces for good and evil. Not a chance. Who is it that's battling against Satan here? It's Michael. It's another angel. It's another angelic being. That, that, that Satan, now, Satan hates us and wants us all destroyed, but he was thrown out of heaven by Michael and the angels, and Satan and his own angels, the third of the host, was thrown down to earth. But, but his ultimate destruction is sealed. And he is on a short leash. He can do nothing other than what God allows him to do. But what does he do on earth? Well, we see this. He, de he deceives people. He accuses God's people. Satan, literally, the word means accuser. And we get four titles here in verse 9. So look at verse 9 again with me. That the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil, and Satan. Was, he's the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And so these four titles tell us about something about Satan. The first, great dragon. This is a destructive force. This is a terrifying image. And so there's a great dragon in the heavens that's trying to destroy humanity. The second title is that he's the ancient serpent. Well, this calls us back to Genesis 3. That he's the deceiver of humanity, the serpent that showed up in the garden, that deceived Adam and Eve, that raised questions for them and led them astray at, at the very beginning. He's called the devil. Well, that's language that we see throughout the Gospels, especially as the great antagonist, the, the one that's standing against the work that, is, that Jesus is doing and even comes to tempt Jesus directly. And then he's called Satan, which means accuser, and that is used throughout the Bible, both Old Covenant and New. It appears everywhere as, as, his, as his title. And, and, so, and here, it, again, it makes it clear for us that he is the accuser of the brothers. That's one that we forget about, and too often we take up Satan's job against God's people. But we need to be careful. This is what he does so if there's any debate about who these characters are, Revelation helps us sort it out and, and see that they are all names for one being. That, that, but we need to remember that in this, what, what do we never see Satan do in Scripture? Well, he cannot create. He can't construct anything. He can't build up. He never can deliver satisfaction or peace or hope. 
all Satan does from start to finish, from top to bottom, throughout God's word, from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22, the only thing we see Satan do is mimic God and lie and twist and kill and steal and destroy. But the hope we have in Revelation 12 is that he's been defeated. Do you see this? In in verse 10, it goes on. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Well, why? It tells us, For the accuser of our brothers, or brothers and sisters, has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him, And this is key in verse 11. They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. So how do we have a hope against this great dragon, against this ancient serpent that has been deceiving humanity throughout history? How do we have a hope against against the devil himself, against Satan as he stands on the sand of the seashore waiting to come and try to destroy us and anyone who calls on Jesus? Well, the only hope we have is the blood of the Lamb. And this calls us back to what we've seen already in Revelation. That Remember back in chapter 5 when John was, was brought in before the throne of God and, and the angels are worshiping God and he's brought into that throne room and then they, sh- they bring out a scroll that is the fullness of God's plan for the redemption and restoration of all things and it has seven seals on it and they, they cry out that who is worthy to open these scrolls, but, but there's no one that's worthy on never come, that all things might not be made new, that what we're experiencing now is the best it gets, that God isn't going to bring perfect justice and peace. And so John weeps at that, and one of the elders of the throne came to him and said, look, at the center of the throne, look and see that it's the Lion of Judah. Look and see it's the Root of David. It's the one, the king that we've been waiting for. But when John looks at the lion of Judah, the root of David, he doesn't see a lion. What he sees is a lamb that looked like it had been slain. See, the the upside-down nature of the gospel is that the only way to conquer this great dragon is to be killed like a lamb. And Christ went to that for us, pure and spotless. And, and there's so much to talk about as far as what Jesus accomplished on the cross. It's always funny to me where, when Christians will argue with each other about what happened in the atonement as if it's only one aspect versus another. There is so much to, that we could break down about what happened at the cross that it's, it, it's like facets of a diamond trying to look at all of the different angles that we can see. That at the cross, Christ went in our place for our sin. That's called penal substitution, to bear the penalty for our rebellion against God and that we were enemies of God on our own, but he stood in our place and in him we are given perfect righteousness, but it's only because he was our representative and substitute. That, that on the cross of Christ, that, that we are expiated. That means that the stain of guilt and sin that we all feel is wiped clean in Jesus. That you can be cleansed from your sin, not by trying to scrub harder in your life, but by, by the washing in the blood of the Lamb that he is the one who makes you clean. That in Christ we stand justified. That if, if we bring, bring atonement into a divine courtroom, then God is the judge that we will all face in the end. 
that the only hope we have to be declared righteous by the judge, the creator of all things, is that Christ gives his righteousness to us and we are justified by God's grace alone through faith in Christ alone. That it, and it keeps going, propitiation, that we are rightly on our own under God's wrath, deserving the wrath of God, and that Christ absorbed the wrath of God on the cross so that we can walk free in freedom from it. Reconciliation, that we are enemies of God in our minds. There is no peace with God on our own, but we are reconciled by Christ's death on the cross so that the relationship is restored and reformed and we can turn to God, the almighty, the, the all-powerful creator of all things, who is enthroned in heaven with beings crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty who was and is and is to come. And we can turn to that God with the intimacy of calling him our dad. It's adoption that we're called children of the most high. It's, it's, it's redemption that we've been purchased from our slavery to sin to serve Christ in, in, in his righteousness. And here in our text, we see what people call Christus Victor. Jesus has conquered sin and death. He has conquered Satan. That this child who was born with a dragon waiting to devour him at his birth was killed, and it's through his death that the dragon was defeated. And so how do, how do we join him in that victory? How, what is the hope for us if Satan wants to kill us, if, if he's intent on our destruction and, and he is intent on your destruction? What is the hope we can have? Well, in verse 11, it tells us that they, that's us, that our hope is that we might conquer Satan by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Why? For they loved not their lives even unto death. Our only hope is through the blood of Christ. That shows up when, we've, when we're in Jesus because the word of our testimony, our witness to the glory of the gospel will be clear. But the calling to follow Jesus isn't an easy one. But this isn't new. This isn't unfamiliar to what Jesus called us to. We read this in Luke chapter 9 that, that he said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him take, deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? It's costly. But here's the beauty. They loved not their lives even unto death. So this is our hope. That, we, that Christ has served as, a, as our example, that we can love him more than life itself. And the sobering reality that is the third reality we face in the fury of our enemy is that Satan is coming for you. I know that's an ominous third of three points, but it fits with the feel of this text. Again, it ends with, and he stood on the sand of the sea. So yeah, Satan is intent on destruction. He's been defeated by the cross of Christ. Don't lose that that's at the center of this passage. But he's coming for you. I mean, this is like some Thanos-type imagery. I know, it's Marvel Comics Universe morning here at, <laughs> at Redemption Hill. 
But like that, that ominous, like you feel like Satan has that kind, same kind of arrogance, right? That he's the one saying, I am inevitable. And, and so we have this beautiful imagery of God's protection of this woman that, that God brings her. The woman fled to the wilderness in verse 6 where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. When the angel in verse 13, oh, in verse 12, this, this third section begins, it says, therefore, so now it applies it. Whenever you see a therefore in scripture, it's telling us this is the application of what has come before. And so we always want to look and see what a therefore is there for. And so it's saying, in light of the victory of the cross of Christ, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but watch out, earth. Woe to you, those who are on earth. Why? Because the devil has come down in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. Satan is most dangerous because he knows he's already lost. He has nothing to lose in coming after you and coming after me. And so when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had, been given birth, who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle. Why? So that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, a place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. And so if you're into literary constructs, we see, this, we see a chiasm developing here in Revelation 12 where it's repeating that the woman is in the wilderness to be nourished. She's back in the wilderness to be nourished. God has a place for his people where he will protect them and nourish them while he will care for them. And, but at the center of this, yes, it's scary, and yes, Satan is coming for you, but don't forget that Satan has been defeated. But this is his fury, that he will do all he can to make war on the offspring of the woman. Then in verse 17, the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. What this means is that if you're not a follower of Christ, then you need to hear what it says in verse 12. Woe to you, O earth, because the devil has come down in great wrath. And if you are a follower of Christ, you need to hear how it ends. That he is making war on who? Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And so we, we have the re, a frightening reality that underlies everything in our experience. And, and so this is you and it's me. And, and remember again, Satan has no power on his own. He has no autonomy on his own. He is a created being that can only do what God allows him to do. This is what we see in the book of Job, right? Is that Satan has to come to God and ask him for permission on what happens to Job. But we don't really like how that went for Job. And so, what does this mean for us? What are the things we need to watch for as the great dragon comes after you and me? Well, I think we need to look at, with clarity, what happens throughout Scripture. Remember Genesis 3. The man and woman were put in the midst of the garden. In God's presence, God walked with them in the cool of the day. They were given access to the entire place to cultivate it and, and to, to be, there was perfect unity between the man and the woman as they came together and God said, all you have to do is, is be fruitful and multiply and take care of this place I've given you. And, and there's one way you can mess up. There's a tree in the midst of the garden. Don't, don't eat the fruit of that one tree. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
And Satan came to them in Genesis 3, and with the very first lie in human history, what did he say? Well, he started by saying, did God really say? He called into question God's goodness. He called into question whether God knew them and knew what was best for them. Called into question whether God was withholding from them. And that is the same lie that echoes through our hearts today. Did God really say? Does God really know what's best for me? Do I really need to listen to what he's set out for me? What are the consequences if I don't? We're like petulant toddlers. Not realizing that what God has set out for us is for our good. We see this even in the way that Satan came to Jesus himself. And so we need to look at that. In, in Luke chapter 4, we're going to take a few minutes to look at this text today because it's, it, it helps us to see how Satan works. And so Jesus was baptized in Luke chapter 3, and then we read that in Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, You are the Son of God. Command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours." And Jesus answered him, it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and in him only shall you serve. And he took him up to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Well, this scene is reminiscent of the first temptation, isn't it? That it's, it, it, it has, it has this, the same feel of what happened in Genesis 3. Now, Adam was in paradise, and Jesus is in the wilderness. Adam had plenty, where Jesus was hungry, and Adam and Eve were together where Jesus was alone. But at the core, it's the same lie. Does God really know what's best for you? It was, it was Satan saying, Jesus, this, this is a hard path you're taking. You've given up a lot. Are you sure that it's worth it? Are you sure that this is the only way? Isn't there an easier way for you? Isn't there a better way for you? What about a shortcut for you? Remember, Jesus had come as the Savior for all people, the Redeemer to win back God's people, and it would take great cost, and he knew it was going to be costly, and we see it in Gethsemane when he was crying out in agony, praying to his Father and saying, saying, Father, if there's another way, take this cup from me. He knew that draining the cup of the wrath, of, God, of, of God's wrath, was, was, was almost more than any could bear. And so he was, he was in agony crying out, and, but he said, but your will, not mine. 
And so each round, these three rounds of temptation that we see from Satan in Luke chapter 4 show an easier way out for him. He's tempted by bread. After 40 days, he was hungry. And Satan says, make the stone bread. You can do it. It was a temptation. It was, a, it was raising the question, will God actually provide what you need to sustain you? He tempted him with power. Satan's saying, I have all this authority, and I will give you their glory. It's been delivered to me. He's saying, Jesus, here's glory for you. It's all yours. There's a shortcut that God's keeping from you. And then tested God's protection, raising the question, does he really care about you? I mean, he says that if you throw yourself down, your, your foot won't strike a stone, but do you think he'll really send his angels? Does God care for you? Is he actually protecting you? Your security is at risk. You see, when we think about temptation, we have funny ways to minimize temptation. We think of temptation, I'm convinced, more like a game. And we talk about it that way, right? Um, somehow I've made it three weeks without talking about this from the pulpit, but I'm trying to do Whole30 right now. <laughs> and that means I'm three weeks out of four plus into not having anything, only eating ingredients for food, really. <laughs> and, and, but in that, there's, there's you know, it's... It, we have a tendency, it, make, it makes me think, and we, so we usually think about things. Right now, food's on my mind, so because it's late morning and I'm hungry. <laughs> so kind of like Luke chapter 4. Right now, if somebody said, you can turn this to bread, I might go, ah, <laughs> I haven't had bread in three weeks. That sounds great. <laughs> but we think about temptation that way. We think about temptation as being like the opposite of self-discipline. And so we are tempted to go eat nachos instead of a salad. Or we are tempted to sleep in instead of get up early. Or we're tempted to go and watch a movie and go on a Netflix binge instead of go to the gym. Or we're tempted, and so we think about these things as like a foil to, well, if I'm self-disciplined or I'm falling into temptation, and I think that's generally the grid we think about it in. And so we think about that on a spiritual level too and think, all right, I need to do the right things, and you might have a different setup of what that looks like and ways to engage in spiritual disciplines and how to live life as a Christian and the ethics that you want to pursue and what you think is that Satan is just trying to make you slip up so that then you can feel guilty and you can feel a sense of shame and, 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 and that it's this, really it's just the foil of like, well, if I'm disciplined enough, then that means I'm not falling into temptation. Listen. We're not dealing with a court jester that's trying to make a fool of us. This is a red dragon in the heavens trying to devour us. This is the ancient serpent who tempted Adam and Eve and, and spurred the fall of humanity and the brokenness of all creation. He's been deceiving human beings for our entire history. And it's not just playing tricks against our self-discipline. This is the devil, the adversary of God's people. This is Satan, your accuser. The one who day and night makes accusations about your fallenness. 
Satan is not trying to get you to slip up. He's not just trying to make you feel a sense of guilt. He's not just trying to make you feel deep shame. He's not just trying to harm your relationships around you through your sin. Because here's the reality. Any one of those things can make you realize your need for a savior and make you more likely to rely on the blood of Christ as your atoning reality. And, and, so, and, and so he doesn't want that. If he can keep you from understanding the depth of your guilt and the depth of your rebellion, that keeps you farther from Christ. But we get caught up in the immediate individual actions and slip-ups and sins of our lives. But, but again, Satan, this great dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, the accuser, he is much more subtle than we think and he is much better at the long game than we are. He wants your destruction he doesn't care if you eat a donut to the glory of God and the joy of all people. <laughs> Russell Moore said, you will be tempted exactly as Jesus was because Jesus was being tempted exactly as we are. You'll be tempted with consumption, security, and status. You'll be tempted to provide for yourself, to protect yourself, and to exalt yourself. And at the core of these three is a common impulse to cast off the fatherhood of God. Russell Moore goes on to say that Satan wasn't trying to get Jesus to sin in Luke 4. He was trying to adopt him. Satan isn't just trying to get you to slip up in your life. He is trying to adopt you, to get you to reject the fatherhood and love of God and turn into your own self-sufficiency and the shortcuts to the glory that's been promised us in Christ already, to convince you that he isn't done yet and that victory is still within his grasp. Satan wants you to abandon and leave behind God's loving care, reject redemption and, and, and through Christ, and to follow your heart into destruction for eternity. Why, do, you know, why have we spent this time in seeing how Jesus is tempted? Because we're told in Hebrews chapter 4, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. It's, it, for we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The good news of the gospel is that because of that, we can draw, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in our time of need. So listen, the greatest move Satan has is, is when he takes the good things that God has given us and convinces us that they are worth pursuing apart from God as ends in and of themselves. And so our hearts get drawn this way, but you've got to hear that Sex is a great gift from God and a terrible pursuit for your life that can destroy you. That, that, that work is a great pursuit. It's a gift from God, a vocation, a calling on your life. And if you make it your God and your end, it will destroy you. Relationships and acceptance are a good thing. It's, it's a right desire. But if we make that our ultimate desire and we just have to get those likes and we actually think that social media equals deep friendship, then it will destroy you. 
Food and drink are gifts from God, and whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we should do it to God's glory. But if we pursue food and drink as our end and our goal, it will destroy you. I know COVID's been hard, but not every hour can be happy hour. Adventure and experiences. Praise God for an ex- a creation to explore and a, a place to get to experience and, and the rush of adrenaline and the rush of dopamines and these good things that we feel when we experience the beauty and glory and majesty of this place that reflect God's glory. And if we make that our end, we will have a restless heart that never finds its rest and we forget that we have all of eternity to explore the renewed heaven and earth. Our physical health and well-being It's a good thing to explore and to pursue and to be careful about. If you make it your God, you will never be healthy enough. You don't realize that you actually can't make yourself immortal. Our only hope is that the lamb has been slain. And our only hope is that we will love Christ more than life itself and bear witness to his conquering love. And and, and so the question comes, like, do you trust God in this? Do you trust him to care for you? Do you trust him to provide for you? Do you trust him that Christ's glory is greater than anything you could ever gain on your own? Knowing that at times it will look like Satan has won. That that the wrath of the dragon is, is let loose on this earth right now. And even knowing that he's been defeated and his time is short, it has intensified his wrath. Do you understand that there will be times when you walk through things in your life that are more than you can handle? And Satan will try to drown you with accusations and lies and suffering. Do you see that? That the serpent poured out water in verse 15 like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. That Satan is trying to drown some of you. And this week, today, some of you are feeling this. You feel like you're drowning, but you need to hear that God has not left you alone. The earth itself opened its mouth and swallowed the river and the dragon had poured from his mouth. And so the dragon was furious. But what did God do? He took her to a place to be nourished for time, times, and half a time. And Tony Evans says, We discover God most powerfully in the context of being overwhelmed. When believers are flooded with opposition, often they are able to watch God supernaturally suck up the flood of despair and avert Satan's plan for their destruction. You see, church, too often we look at the wilderness, at the desert, at the dry times in our lives, at the tough times in our lives, at times when we feel uncertain and abandoned and unprovided for and powerless. We look at those times as if they are God's judgment on us and his abandonment of us, and we forget that we are under the protection of God for the sake of our preservation. For years, I read The Temptation of Jesus, and even as I kind of joked already this morning, I read it and thought, 40 days in the wilderness, being tempted by Satan all the way through, and then at the end of it, when he's hungry, Satan comes and the first thing he says is make the stone into bread. And as, as, a, as a sizable man, I am like, I, that is the, I cannot imagine being at a more vulnerable point. But, we, but then I realized something. Luke chapter 4 begins that, by saying Jesus was in the wilderness led by the Spirit. He wasn't alone. He wasn't abandoned by God. The Spirit of God led him to that place. And in that place, 
he was able to realize the fullness of God's presence in a way that he couldn't with all the comforts that we, that we strive after. That, that yes, he was hungry, but, but Jesus was physically hungry. He had spent 40 days communing with God in full dependence on his Father, led by God's Spirit. And so spiritually, in his soul, he had been nourished, as it talks about here. And, and, and this is why it's so powerful to read verse 14, that, that God led the woman into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God, to be nourished there by God. And, and that this is, we need to realize that often it is in the wilderness where God meets us most profoundly. Profoundly, and it is in the dry places and in the times when we realize that we have nothing else left in our lives that we realize that Jesus is all we need. That God nourishes his people. And so Jesus was coming into the temptations of Satan with the strength of communion with God. And so this is the promise that we have in Revelation chapter 12. We have a great enemy, and he is furious, but he's been defeated. He can't win. In fact, he's already lost. And what we are experiencing now is the thrashing of the great dragon's fury. He will do all the damage he can along the way. He is too powerful for any of us on our own. But if you are in Christ, then you are promised that the one who is in you is greater than this ancient serpent in this world. So yes, he is poised and working for our destruction. There is a cosmic battle happening right now, even if we can't see it. But our calling and our hope in this passage are clear. Satan is intent on our destruction. He is coming for you, but he has been, has been defeated in the cross of Christ. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Father, we don't have the power on our own to give up our lives. And so we pray that you would lead us by your Spirit. We pray that like your Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness place, that you would help us to be able to trust your leading and guidance, even when it doesn't make sense to us. That we would see that it's in the wilderness and in the desert that you nourish our souls and give us hope and life and peace. And I pray today that you would move in the hearts of those who have heard this passage and heard your word. I pray for those who are feeling, who feel like they're drowning today in, in a flood of accusation and lies and deception that has been released from the serpent's mouth. Father, that your earth would swallow those things up and that you would bring freedom that we can only have in Christ. I pray for those who are, who are wrestling with deception and lies, unsure of your goodness and provision, that you, you would bring your voice with greater clarity than the noise of the accuser. And for those wrecked with shame and under the weight of their own guilt that are unconvinced that you could ever love them, I pray that you would set their eyes on Christ the one who has gone before us, who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, and that, that he is our high priest and that we are given the freedom to openly come to the throne of grace. Lord, would you save us today, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.